Welcome to The Unsilent Stones, an audiobook by Abarta Heritage, produced on behalf of Transport Infrastructure Ireland. This audiobook features fictionalised stories that relate the experiences of those resting in Athlone's Abbey graveyard. Situated on a patch of dry ground just east of the River Shannon, the graveyard is positioned a short distance outside Athlone's North Gate. In days gone by, this spot overlooked a small bay and harbour on the river. The graveyard takes its name from a Franciscan friary church that was under construction here during the late 1600s. It still stands today, though it was never fully completed. Works ceased when catastrophic war came to Athlone in 1690 and 1691. While most of what is visible today dates to the 17th century, it seems certain there was religious activity on this spot long before. Four early Christian cross-inscribed slabs were discovered here, suggesting that this may have been a significant early church site more than 1,000 years ago. It is also possibly the site of the first Franciscan friary, which was established in Athlone during the 13th century. But despite these potential early origins, the majority of the visible gravestones date to the 18th and 19th centuries. Very few of them remain in their original positions, having been moved to their present locations in 1984. Thankfully, Hazel Ryan recorded all the headstones and their inscriptions prior to their relocation. It is these headstones that inspire many of the stories you are about to hear in this Abarta audiobook, which Transport Infrastructure Ireland commissioned as the graveyard lies on the route of the Garry Castle to Athlone Marina shared cycleway and footway, forming part of the National Cycleway linking Galway and Dublin. Join us as we enter Athlone's Abbey Graveyard to meet and converse with some of the residents. The people we will meet will take us on a journey across hundreds of years of Athlone history and they will share their experiences in life and death with us. But we cannot just barge into the land of the dead and start asking questions. We need a guide to introduce us to the residents. Luckily, we know just the person. Meet Anne Lester, the last person to be laid to rest in this ancient place. You're so very welcome. What news do you have of the world? We're all starved for news here. They all keep badgering me for updates as I was the last in when I crossed the threshold in 1948. As dear old Francis Clinton says, we need new blood in the mud. (laughs) What year is it now? Have you any news of my family, the Listers? Surely you must know us. We were on King Street in the town there. The finest builders in the area. And sure, our hardware was used to build half the town. Well, the good half, anyway. (laughs) I'm one of the luckier ones here. I lived a good long life and got to the fair age of 82. And I'm in good company with my family. My mother, Cecilia, brothers Martin and Joseph, sister Mary and little baby Rosanna. Hmm. How I wish I could have given some of my long span of years to Rosanna. (sighs) We can't change it, though, as much as we'd like to. Well, I know I'd have nothing but complaint if I don't introduce you around. Stories are our lives now. We must tell our tales so people will remember us. We're going to meet some people I think you might find interesting. Though I must warn you, Some have had a much harder life than I. 
Still, though, they find comfort in telling their stories to those who will listen. Before we start, I'd better get us a blessing from the friar. Tis their land after all. Holy Ground Excuse me, Brother Gerald. We have a visitor. Hello there. Welcome to our cemetery. I trust you are here to meet some of our flock. I have grown to know them all well over the years. Well, I should have, for I am one of the reasons they are all here, you see. My name is Friar Gerald, and I am proud to say that I was one of the first of the Ordo Fratrum Minorum to grace that alone. You might know us better as the Order of Lesser Brothers, or maybe as the Franciscans. I was born in England, but as you might say, I am an old Athlone man now, for I've been here nigh on 800 years, though some residents still call me a blow-in. <laughs> Imagine that, 800 years. Our beloved St. Francis hadn't long ascended to the table of our Lord when I first walked into this town, determined to spread his message. Ah, we were true pioneers back then. We had a whole new way of doing things, not like those old corrupt priests and lordly religious men of earlier days. A fire burned in us to follow St. Francis's example. And so... We cast away all property and vowed ourselves to a life of poverty. From the moment that vow passed my lips, I never in all my earthly days afterwards owned a single possession. Nor did I need to, for the Lord provided for us through his people. Even down to this tunic I wear on my back. That came from good King Henry, Henry III, as, as you know him, who, in his mercy, gave clothes to all Irish friars in the 1230s, not long before I first walked the streets of Etlone. Ah, well do I remember my first days in the town. It was a smaller place then, but we knew it would grow. We had journeyed from our Dublin house, preaching from town to town all the way. The good citizens bestowed their charity upon us. So humbled were they at our commitment and devotion to God. Like our other new brother order, the Dominicans, they called us mendicants, for we relied on arms for survival. In payment, we showed them the path of God and preached to them his word. Oh, how we lifted their souls. Many's the day we spent on the streets and markets of Leinster tending to our Irish flock. By night, huddled together in humble rooms graciously provided to us. It was, oh, Anno Domini, 1241 when I arrived on the beautiful Shannon's banks. I praised God and St. Francis for leading me here, where I could best do their will. Oh, how we rejoiced when our lordly patron gifted us the lands and monies to establish our friary. In our new community, I found my home, and though its walls have long since gone, we still stand on its blessed grounds today. It is a home I love still. We Franciscans lived to serve God by serving man. That's just what we did in Athlone. The walls of our friary were built on the holy ground of an earlier monastery and were a spiritual refuge to all in those oft-troubled days. It pains me to say that war and strife never strayed far from the town's walls, but still we filled our lives with joy where we could. <laughs> For long years, I dedicated myself to all within the walls and shared loss and laughter with them. 
We welcomed the people to our church to hear the word of God, and went out to preach among them. We baptized them, married them, and buried them right here where you stand. One thing you could say, we were never idle. <laughs> we were not praying or, or tending to the people. We were laboring for our brothers and the community. Ah, many is the joyous hour I spent in the friary kitchen. Look, it used to stand just over there. <laughs> I had my specialities, and good at preparing them I was too. The other monks called me the fisherman. So long did I spend in the company of those who cast their nets in the Shannon's rich waters. But I can tell you, they were glad enough when I brought the bounty back to grace our meals in the friary. Joyous days indeed. <laughs> our time is long gone now, but isn't our work still here for you all to see? Over centuries I watched as we Franciscans came and went from it alone. It's true, our order went through some dark days on the island and this great town, but our brothers yet endure, and once again walk at lone streets. Oh, it fills my heart to think that I was among the first. <laughs> but I think God would forgive me that prideful feeling. We left at alone better than the way we found it. Wouldn't you agree, Anne? Yes, indeed, Brother Gerald. Much better. Now, if you'll excuse us, we won't keep you any longer. Of course, dear Anne. And may the Lord bless and keep you. God bless you, brother. Come now, I think I see my good friend Margaret. I have to introduce you to Margaret. Dearly departed. Margaret! Hello, Margaret! Hello, Anne. Who is this you have with you now? A new visitor. Welcome to our little community. A pretty curious gathering we are, I'm sure you'll agree. I suppose I have to give up my dear Anne for the day, but I don't mind. There is no one better to show you around, that's for sure. She and I are the fastest of friends, you see. Anne is my class of people. A good woman with good manners. That was important in my day. There's a few about here who could do with taking some lessons in that. I don't mind saying, but I shouldn't gossip. I suppose times change. Still, when I came into the world, we all knew how to behave in polite society. We had to, you know, as... We were on the climb in those days. Hard work, good values and respectability. Those were our watchwords. My birth name was Margaret Fenner and it was in the 1760s that I was born into Athlone. My father had built his own business in the town and he and my mother raised me well, I can tell you. They gave me the start I needed and I'm forever grateful to them for it. As a young woman, I got my match and wed into the Hart family. Oh, but I was blessed with good fortune. My husband was a hard-working, industrious man and he made a good life for us. My parents spoke of the hard times of the penal laws, but by our day, things had gotten easier. The chances were growing for good, honest Catholics and we got ourselves a nice, comfortable home in the centre of things. We were an army town, which was a good thing for business during those wars with the French. A very good thing indeed. There was profit enough for all who were willing to work for it. We had our jolly times too, of course, back in those younger days. We had made something of ourselves and grew to be well-liked in local society circles back then. Oh, but we had some splendid affairs in Athlone. How I adored attending them. I can still see those concerts and dining halls filled with town's finest ladies and gentlemen, the better class of people. You would marvel at the conversations we had. They were proper affairs, you know, 
Even the local gentry sometimes grace them. Ah, oh, heady days indeed. Oh, but I'm carried away. You will have me mistaken for one of those frivolous ne'er-do-wells, living only for society. That was not where my real joy lay. While my husband laboured in his business, I concentrated on running our household. You can tell all you need to know about people by how they run their household, you know. That is where their reputation resides. It was no easy thing either. It took up all my energies, you can be sure. I don't mind saying I took great pride in how I succeeded at it. I had two servants to direct, a parlour to keep stocked and entertainments to provide. And of course, there was the children, my beloved children, our family's legacy. How I poured my heart and soul into them. It was my task to look to their nurturing, to set them on the right path of moral and religious instruction. I hope I succeeded in that. I think I did. I was fortunate to live a long life and to see my children become the people I hoped they would be. They were always my greatest source of pride and solace. I could wish for no greater legacy than what is inscribed on my stone. I have my beloved son Thomas to thank for that. He did me honour when I finally passed in 1846. If you find it, you will see what I mean. I read it often and think of our happy family. A true Christian, fidelity as a wife, tender solicitude as a parent, and sincerity and truth as a friend. What more could you ask for in a life? How I was blessed. But not everyone here was as fortunate. Spare a thought for them as you continue on your journey. Nowadays, Anne and I offer solace and companionship to many of them and help where we can. You might meet some of them during your time here, like poor Biddy and Catherine, girls who are especially dear to us. I have a new family now, but I still try to live by the values I held dear in life. There is no better guiding star. Oh, look, Anne, there is poor Biddy now. You'd better go to her. You and I will catch up later. I want to hear all the news. Of course, Margaret. I'll call around later. Lost to sight. Ah, poor Biddy. Look at her. She had nothing in life, and by the end she had even lost her sight. Dear Margaret and I tried to keep her spirits up here, but she had an awful time of it. Hello, Biddy. How are you today, dear? I have a visitor for you to meet. Hello, Anne. And who was this with you? Do they have any news? Hello. Biddy McConnell is my name. I may not be able to see, but in this graveyard I always know where I am. I lived much of my life about here, you know. See those buildings yonder, rising into the sky just over the road? I may not be able to see them no more, but I can still feel their presence. I tell you that. You be my eyes now. Look over and trace the outline of those grey stone walls, those windows, that pitched roof. I shiver to think of it. Those cold stone buildings aren't much changed in look from when I went in there, I'm told. Different inside now, though. Well, I should hope so. You wouldn't want to have seen it when I went in. Back in the year 1846. Bad times. Some of the worst. And I with the misfortune to be in the middle of it. Then were the days of the great hunger. The blight hadn't long come when my father's job went with it. Before long so was our small home, down on the Shannon's banks. At least we called it home. A stinking hovel, the bailiffs called it, as they were dragging down its mud walls. After that, the workhouse was the only roof we could get. Little did I think it would be the last I ever had. I was 13 years old when I walked through that gate. And it was six years later I was put into the earth over here. I was lucky to get that far.
There's plenty went into the ground without ever crossing that road. Look again, just opposite us. Anne tells me the small building we call the Dead House is still there. That's where they prepared my mortal remains after I passed. There was many I knew began their final trips inside that little building. Too many. And plenty of them younger than myself too. It was a hard life we had inside there, I suppose. Hard times were all I ever knew, really. Our family went into the workhouse early enough. The cruelest thing was that they split us up immediately. We only had each other and they even took that away. We were all split up by age and the boys and the men went one way, the girls and the women the other. There seemed to be more and more forced in there with every pass and minute them days. Not that they wanted to be. Us ordinary folk had no choice during the cursed famine. Those who could got away to England or America, but those crowd had money. We had nothing. Paupers, they called us. The lower orders. In the end, there got to be so, so many of us that they had to move us girls into a new building. An auxiliary workhouse, they called it. A grand name, I suppose. It didn't feel so grand when there were near 400 of us packed into it, I can tell you that. I can still smell it. Still feel the filth on my skin. Every morning we were stood outside, every one of us, to have a bit of cold water from a couple of buckets splashed about our persons. And then only two towels between us. It was little wonder we got sick. I used to wonder why our betters didn't do more for us. Probably thought we weren't worth the trouble, I suppose. Still, not everyone inside there was bad. We stuck together, us workhouse girls. And the matron tried to help us where she could. She had a kindly heart. But there were just too many people and too much want. And so there was too much sickness. And too much death. We used to wonder what it would be that would get us. The cholera, dysentery, fever, smallpox, dropsy. For me, it was the eye sickness. It was often about at loan, right enough. It always seemed to be us children got it worse and it fair burned through that workhouse. Burned is right. Well, I remember when the first came down with it. Children feared of going blind, having barely seen anything of the world. Some tried washing their eyes out with urine to save their sight. I well remember too that big eye doctor sent down from Dublin, prodding our eyes. Wild, they called him. His son was some sort of writer, Anne tells me. I know nothing about that. Truth be told, I know little enough about him. For by the time he came, I could barely see him. I overheard him telling our doctor what was needed to help stop the blindness spreading. Pure air, cleanliness, warmth, ventilation, sewerage, sanitation. All things we had none of and little chance of getting. The man wild didn't stay long anyway and by then it was already too late for me. They tried those silver drops and the leeches, but it was no use. Some of the fortunate only lost a bit of their sight. I lost it all. The girls did try to help me after, and I came to know my way around well enough over the next few years. Blind people are remarkably long-lived, the doctor said to me. You'll grow used to it. Turns out he was wrong on that count, at least as far as I was concerned. I was 19 when another sickness came calling on me, back in 1852. Still, it is better days now. I have Anne here, and Margaret, and all the others to keep me company. Better days than I ever enjoyed over the road, that's for sure. I've not known friendship and kindness like it when I was on the other side. And we're glad to have you as a friend, Biddy. Take a rest there, and I'll be back to you in a while. I'll just carry on with the introductions. Don't mind us. 
Last orders. Ah, poor Biddy. She puts a brave face on, but God, she had a hard life. And she's not the only one. There's many more that pass through that workhouse here. But oh, look, here's Mr. Begg holding court again, pouring out the porter for his friends. Welcome, Anne. Glad you and your friend could join us. Good of you to make it over to our corner. You've come to the right place. <laughs> for this is the place to be if you want hospitality. For you see, you've had the good fortune to land amongst the innkeepers. <laughs> Let me introduce you to myself and my friends. I am Mark Begg, and, and this here is my wife, Margaret. You come upon us as we have guests of our own. This lady opposite is Maggie Nolan, and beside her is the strapping specimen that is Pat Donnelly. <laughs> ah, we all have lots to talk about, you see, for we all ran the same business. <laughs> no, no, not at the same time, of course, but, but still. Needless to say, it was me that was the first of them. The inn we kept was over the main street, across on the Connaught side of the river. Ah, what a fine place it was. We had 60 feet fronting onto the street, and a plot that ran all the way back to the waterside. Right over from the castle we were. It was a fine spot for trade, you better believe. I had the place back in the 1730s, and made it into quite the establishment, even if I do say so myself. <laughs> oh, we used to get all the military boys inside, forever drinking toast to this victory or that general. We were a bit rowdy at times, but good regular customers. We were doing well. But it was when I set up the stagecoach that things really took off. It was the first one ever between Atlone and Dublin, don't you know? Oh, a right good service. Well, that's how I advertised it, I can tell you. It surely was. <laughs> it took travellers all the way to Capel Street in Dublin and back, where, of course, I was always quick to offer them a bed. <laughs> After I was gone, it was the others who continued on with what I built. Maggie here, she had the place in the 1740s. The Widow Larkin, she was known as back then. She was leasing it off George Rochford, who had been an MP for Westmead in my day. He became Earl of Belvedere, I'm told. Maggie paid him £30 a year for the privilege. Oh, she did well in dealing with him and make no mistake. He was said to have kept his wife locked away and was the type of man to get himself shot up in jewels. Oh, a fellow best kept on the right side of. <laughs> Maggie managed it, though, and the inn fairly thrived. In them days, the stage left right from the front door every Thursday and came back on a Monday. Ah, you'd be clamouring to get onto it then, mark me. It was served by a fine new luxury carriage. Uh, what, what, what they called a Landau. A retractable roof it had for those odd fine days we get in Ireland. <laughs> those stepping aboard were travelling in some of the most elegant style in all the kingdom. On top of it all, they had the value of their luggage guaranteed. In case their positions were lost or were taken by some devil of a highwayman on the journey. Oh, everything was thought of. <coughs> the carriage was drawn by a team of four horses. And there was even a relay system in place to keep the speed up. There were always four fresh horses kept on hand in Kinnegad, ready to be swapped over into the harness on the way through. Inside the inn. Maggie got in all new beds for the place, and a good, comfortable lying there was to be had in them too. By the time Pat here had his hands in the place in the early 1800s, it was the best situation in Ireland. <laughs> At that time, there was house rooms aplenty, stabling for 60 horses, and a private passage to access the Shannon. <laughs> to top it all, it was situated 
right there in the centre of the main street. I mean, what more could you want? Everyone who was anyone stayed here. The great and the good. <laughs> and the not so great and so good. <laughs> anyway, anyway, we all had good times there. And have good times now discussing our old inn. I, I, I hope you don't mind us pestering you about it, but... Ah, how we did love the place. And it gave us skills of great use to everyone here. And guests like yourself. As you can be sure, we know well how to look after people. <laughs> I, I, I hope you'll not be leaving us for a while. But when you do, I hear tell from Anne that there's still a drinking house on the site of the former establishment. Sean's Bar, I, I believe is the name for these days. I hope the present proprietor is keeping up to our standards. <laughs> if you find yourself there, raise a glass for all of us who went before. I've a nice gin for you, Anne, when you're done gossiping. <laughs> Gossip indeed. The cheek. But I do like a nice drop of gin and water. I'll be back with the news in a while. Hell upon the earth. The final battle. Oh, Lord, save us. Here is Sean Quinn. The poor man went through some terrible things. He isn't at peace at all, but he seems a little easier after he tells his story, like it gives him some relief for comfort to get it all out again. Here's someone new to listen, Sean. It does me good to tell it on, but are they ready to hear it? For there's not one in this century whose eyes have gazed upon the horrors I've seen. The Lord spurred me my life for more than 60 years, but as a youth, I'd already been to hell upon the earth right here in Atlone. I was there in 1691, when that Dutchman Ginkle rained a hail of fire and iron onto our heads. I was just a boy of 14 summers then, but there I learned that death dances among us every minute of every day and laughs while it does it. There was nowhere in that hell like that damn bridge. Them trying to cross it, us trying to stop them. For what seemed like eternity, we fought them there, high above the River Shannon. Look, that bridge burned the soul from men's hearts. The bombs and bullets we flung at each other paid many a man's passage to the underworld, their bodies floating down the Shannon like logs during felling season. That was my first fight. <laughs> I may as well tell you now why it was my last. I'd never been there at all if it wasn't for the Ulsterman. <laughs> A handful of them used to call out to our farm to trade that winter, a little ways out of the town. Dragoons, they called themselves, and a magnificent sight they were. Infantry who rode to battle sitting atop a horse. Pride of the Jacobite army. Many's a night I listened to their stories in our yard as I groomed their mounts for a bit of coin. Faith, how I wanted to be one of them. Well, I got my chance. That They needed a boy to look after their horses and I was in the want of adventure. So into it lone I went with them. The pride bursting my heart out of my chest. What men they were. What a young fool I was. It was only a few weeks before I was at that damn bridge. William of Orange's man, Ginkle, and his army had bashed into the east of the town, and us dragoons got orders to stop them at the river. Every pair of hands was needed on the line. Our lads knocked a hole in the middle of that bridge. It may as well have been the mouth of hell. Before long, we were all together there. The enemy huddled behind the barricade, we behind ours. Hour after pitiless hour, we threw everything we had at each other, them trying to cross, us trying to push them back. For long years, the screams, curses and cries rang in my ears. 
My dreams were often visited upon a young Frenchman I huddled beside in that hole. <laughs> a fresh-faced boy not much older than me, just starting his life. We never did speak. Still, his look of surprise is like an old friend to me now, forever frozen on his face. I can still see him falling backwards down and down and the iron shrapnel lodged between his eyes. The terror it would be me. My last hours as a whole man were the hottest I ever saw. In the dead of night, the enemy inched forward, throwing planks across the gap on the bridge. They fairly made the fire scorch as they set our barricades ablaze and us burrowing ourselves into the earth to escape. All seemed lost, but our Ulstermen had other ideas. The first of them was Sergeant Costume. One of the very men who used to call to our yard, I, I well remember his grizzled face as he clapped on his armour. The silent nods from the grenadiers as he and his men moved through the lines. Everyone knew they were dead men walking. I was near them in the last moments before they leapt into the works. God, but I'll never forget it. Sergeant Custom looked me right in the eye and then they were up and over. Before you could blink, they were gone. The bridge had turned to an inferno when their feet hit the stone. Bullets rang like bells from their steel armor, but still they sprang for the Williamites' blanks. The battle raged on them. Some used their bodies as shields, sacrificing themselves so others could claw at timbers and fling them into the abyss. Sweet mercy how they fell. They, they were cut down like wheat before the sickle. In moments, they were all gone. It was barely over before more dragoons flung themselves over the works to finish the job. A lieutenant led them, but he was on the road to eternity before his feet hit the bridge. How they did it, I'll never know. But they did. It was an awesome sight. They tore at those planks like wild beasts and closed the bridge to the Willamites once more. In the end, there was but two left living to try back for our line. I should have stayed where I was, but I was young and my blood was hot. I leapt like a hare to help pull the last of the Ulsterman to safety, and the bullet found my arm. But <laughs> my war was over. I'll never forget that bridge. Not in my life, nor in death. I carried it with me for nigh on fifty years. A useless arm to remind me of a youthful fool. Why, I carried other reminders with me too. That young Frenchman. Costume and his Ulsterman. All gone. And that loan gone regardless. Was it worth it? I'll tell you now. It was hell upon the earth. But it was some sight all the same. Crownland. What terrible things he saw as a young boy. You'd think you'd get rest here, but there's no rest for him. The memories linger. Speaking of lingering, would you like to meet our oldest residents? Royalty too, no less. Imagine that. We share our little graveyard with kings. We're going to meet King Alel Ua Dunkado. He died in the year of our Lord, 764. Can you imagine? And Murkiartik Uataig, who died in 967. Now, being royal, they're somewhat, well, I don't like to speak ill of the dead, but I suppose I'm dead too, so I can get away with it. <laughs> but they can be a bit, well, haughty, to say the least. They've been here so long, their voices are growing faint. If it wasn't for their pride, they'd have winked out like a candle as so many of our older residents have done. 
even in death we only have a short span. Oh, sure, much longer than the span above ground, but still, time marches on. Even so, having two kings here is a great credit to the graveyard and... One king. What? One king. You forget yourself again. That boy was never a king. I would have been a damn sight better king than you. Anyway, you were only a minor chief, really. Don't be giving yourself airs. King! <laughs> king of what? A bog, three cows and a half dozen lackwits? You forget yourself, boy. Our line was the more senior. Oh, here we go again. Sorry you have to witness this. They're always at it. Hammer and tongs. You'd think they'd get along having so much in common, but no. Always a row. Maybe the royal blood is a bit richer and this affects the temperament. I have a perfect temperament. I would not have been chosen king if I had not. The boy, on the other hand... Boy? I am no boy. We had the Vikings to contend with, not some incestuous squabble with our cousins. Vikings, Vikings, all you talk of are these Vikings. Never heard of them from anyone else, and I know every tour on this island, and... They aren't from this island, you braggator. Oh, so they're from Inish more so? How did they get so fierce? Anyway, I had real people to deal with. I smashed those upstart Ebruin and paid them back in blood for the many insults to their betters. I faced them down in the south of County Mayo, as you recent people call it, at a place called Drimrubbig. I sent the Ebruin scurrying away like rats. The irony is they are kin to us. We are all Connachta, all descended from the same glorious ancestor, Con of the Hundred Battles. Each of his four sons, Fiachroch, Briun, Alil, and Nile, sired dynasties that became the most powerful ruling families in Ireland. As the descendants of the oldest brother, Fiachroch, we, of course, should be the first, the most revered and noblest. Though ask anyone but more than one son who gives the most trouble, it is always the second. The descendants of Briun commit outrages in their endless greed for more land and power. Though I taught them a lesson they will not forget at Drimrubbig. My dynasty should have exalted me to the highest. But did they bury me in my rightful place at Clonmacnoise with Blessed Ciaran and all the other people of note? No. They dumped me in this insignificant place with all these lesser peoples. Lesser? Lesser? Lesser from you. Sure, everyone knows of all the sons of Con of the Hundred Battles, it was the youngest son, Nile that would head the greatest dynasty. Now, my people, the Canale Connell, were people of note. Sure, things had started to go down a little because our treacherous kin, the Canale known thieves, had stolen lands and glory from us, but we were on the way up. I was the heir designate to the whole of Connacht. Just one more battle and we'd be back on top. The canale known King Donal Uanail had overreached and made too many enemies. First they stupidly chased the Vikings out, depriving themselves of all that silver and trade. Then they pushed deep into the Aragilla territory and even up into the royal residence of Clan Holman on Loch Enel. So many enemies, so we were rightfully confident. Haughty were our men when we fought the Battle of Formwill. We had the numbers, but they had the ground. They were perched like crows atop the hill of Formill, with impassable bogs around the southern and eastern sides, meaning we had to go the long way to get around at them. We came from the north and crossed a winding river. After this long march with wind and driving rain in our face, we were already near exhausted and soaked to the bone by the time we got to the base of the hill. You should never have attacked. I would not have attacked. I would have waited until they ran out of food and then smashed them on the lowland. Yes, that would have been better. But our king, Mael Isu Ua Kananon, would not back down. Would not be shamed into patience or a retreat. He went up and we went up after him, into the waiting spears and swords of Canale Known. And here I am. At least you were given a fine stone to mark your place. But where is it now, eh? I do not see it. Where is my fine stone with the evangelists? 
Ask that person, Anne. Ask them have they seen my stone, the finest here. Ask them where my stone is too, Anne. Where are our stones? We are royal, bad enough that we are in this cloying grey stony soil rather than the rich saintly loam of Clonmagnoise. But to be without our stones? How will people know they are in the presence of royalty? I'll make inquiries, gentlemen. I'll ask. Now, I'll just bring our guest along to meet the Catherines, and if I hear, I'll come back to you. See that you do. Sorry about that now. Like I said, haughty. A previous guest here told me their stones are in the castle in Atlone. Have you seen them? They sound very grand altogether. Come now, let's move on. We'll go over to meet the Catherines, a daughter and her mother. Final delivery. Hello, Catherine. How are you and your mother? I've someone with me to hear your story. Oh, Anne, let's go a little way where my mother won't hear. Even after all these years, I can't speak of it to her. Those were troubled days, and she had enough troubles in life. I don't need to be adding to them in death. At least that's what I tell myself. Maybe I can share my burden with you, though. Pray that it might give me some comfort, for I tell you it is a burden to bear. The woman standing there is my mother, Catherine. She passed in 1803, back when I was not yet a girl of two years of age. This ground was already warm with three of her babies, who had trodden the path to God before her. She cares for them still. My own life was short, but at least I was spared to become a woman, which was more than was given to my siblings. Still, my own time on earth had its own trials. Oh, poor father. Poor Will. Perhaps it is a mercy for mother that she was dead and gone before then. What is sure, the rest of us can never forget it. In my young days, my father George was deputy postmaster in Athlone. He was one of the most respected men in town. That is how mother still remembers him. I would have her continue to do so. Those days our house was a special place. It was a home, a post office, an apothecary, all rolled into one. As well as coming to our house for all the post in town, the townspeople also came to us for their medicines. Everyone in town beat a path to our door sooner or later. Father even found time to act as surgeon to some of the artillery. That was the time we were at war with the French and everyone was looking to do their bit. Father had stretched himself too thin, what with all the extra military about the place which is why he took in Will to live with us and work the post. He was like an older brother to me, for I grew up with him. I was still a babe when he came, he but a boy of eleven. From the time I could walk, I ran everywhere after my Will. No matter how much I annoyed him for play or attention, he always had a smile for me. Round and round the kitchen he would spin me, me pretending to be a bird soaring high above the Shannon. He had the patience of a saint. How I loved him. My adopted brother, Will. Oh, poor Will. It was the summer of 1805 it happened. The Carlo militia were in town then. They in their red uniforms everywhere. Those soldiers fairly wore a path to our house, for they were always sending letters somewhere. The Red Lobster Men, I called them knowing no better who they were. How I used to tug at Will's leg whenever they ducked through the door. It was only a few weeks later all hell broke loose. I still hear those men's shouts bursting down the door, roaring after Father and Will. They dragged poor Will out by his collar, still only a boy at fifteen. It was the last time I ever saw him. It wasn't long before our misery was the talk of all Athlone. Father was dismissed not long after. The whispers were everywhere. It was years before I properly understood what happened, for Father would never talk of it. 
They were accused of stealing the money the soldiers had paid in postage on 75 letters. One penny for each letter. 75 pence in all. A pittance of money, but oh God. What a cost. For embezzling from the post office, no matter how paltry, carried but one sentence. Death. The bloody codes, they later called those laws. And how bloody they were. And barbaric. Not one of those 75 letters ever went astray. But that mattered not. The trial for my father and Will's lives was in Tullamore in 1806. By then it was the talk of the county. Thanks be that father had respected men to speak for him. It helped spare his life. So too did the fact that it was Will who the soldiers had paid, often while I stood at his knee. That sealed his fate. The jury recommended mercy for poor Will because of his age and the tiny sum. But it was no matter. The judge donned the black cap and Will was sentenced to suffer death as a felon. Poor Will was lost. Father was never the same man. It is well that Mother is in ignorance of the tragedy. It was many years later I happened across a pamphlet that spoke of the trial. The judge's instructions to the jury are etched forever on my mind. I can't help but imagine poor, trembling Will as he heard them. Gentlemen, it may seem a very harsh and severe law which provides that a man shall forfeit his life for embezzling the few pence which the prisoner is charged. But if the trust and confidence which the public has reposed in its servants shall be violated, all the benefits which we derive from that most useful establishment, the post office, will be frustrated. If the legislature has thought proper to attach penalties, however severe, to particular offences, they must be enforced. Oh, that poor boy. That poor boy. They have no pity, those judges. None. I'm sorry for Will, Catherine, and for you and your father. Mind yourself now, Catherine. It does no good to dwell. Be at peace for a while now you've told the tale. Come on, let's go over to Edward. Oh, he's a fine young man and a real scholar. Such a way with words. A Gaelic bard. Ah, look at him. Isn't he handsome? Hello, Edward. I have a new visitor for you. A fine job the mason made of my memorial, isn't it? Great credit to him for it. It's no mean feat to carve out Ireland's native tongue into stone so well, I can tell you that. He was obviously an artist. Credit too to my father and brother who had him do it. They promised me when I slipped away that they would see it done. They were true to their word. That was all the way back in 1822. And you didn't see many stones like it around here then. Or anywhere else for that matter. There was few of us native speakers who could afford to do it. I tell you, it's still a source of pride to me to see how I was remembered in our own Irish script. Even still, I often gaze on it, 200 years later. But my apologies, I've yet to pay you the courtesy of introducing myself. Edward Hoare is my own name. I may have been only a lad at 20 when I went to my rest, but at least I left a legacy. Maybe you've heard of me. Perhaps you might know me as Eamon O'Horky, to give you my name in its true Irish form. Are you not acquainted with the Midnight Court? No? <laughs> Come then, let me share with you the tale of it, and of my pride and joy, my greatest creation that lives on even now. I may now be buried here in Westmead, but I was born and raised a proud Roscommon man. Our home lay in Barry Beg, on Varavug just over the other side of the Shannon Water there, near the shores of Lochree. Faith, but it was a heartland of the old language in them days. How I loved it. From as soon as I could write my own name, all I would think of was the Gaelic morning, noon and night. She weren't we raised on it. Stories and songs to stir the heart. I was still just a wee boy when I started to compose my own verses. 
spare me, but awkward little things they were. <laughs> but still, my family were always full with their encouragement. They indulged me in my passion, and I am ever grateful to them for it. In the end, it wasn't my own modest efforts as a bard that led to the creating of my legacy. I suppose there's a monster man I have to thank for it, truth be told. Though, don't be going around saying that too loudly. <laughs> Still, what a bard he was. Brian Merriman was his name, based down in Clare. It was back before I was born that he wrote his great work, Court on Van Eha, as it was called. The Midnight Court, in English. <laughs> but it would split your sides to read it. The greatest piece of comic poetry ever written in Irish, they say. And they're not wrong either. It's the tale of an unfortunate poet, so you can see why I'd be drawn to it. Our hero falls asleep by the shores of a lake, only for a giantess to drag him off to the court of the Queen of the Fairies. Before he knows it, he's perched inside a ruined church, facing the might of the old laws. He and the other young men of Ireland are charged with failing to marry and fathering the children needed to save the Irish people. Tis in the evidence the laughter lies, but I won't spoil it for you. Ah, but tis a fierce funny tale. I can see that you are wondering what all this has to do with me. But you see, there was one problem with Merriman's poem. The great bard had written it all in the Clare Irish. That wasn't much use to us, for it wasn't what we spoke around here. Ours was a different dialect altogether, a type of Irish peculiar to the south parts of Roscommon. It was imbued with the stone walls and the damp fields, the crooked trees and the ancient landscape that surrounds us. It saddens me to say it, but our beloved Roscommon Irish is long gone now. Like most of the old Irish dialects, it'll never be heard spoken again. Gone. Forever. Still, it doesn't do well to dwell on such sadness, and there are plenty of Fallons to converse with me here in the old tongue. Back then, the Roscommon Irish was in near every home. I wanted the ordinary folk of Roscommon to be able to enjoy the Midnight Court as much as myself, and so in the year 1817 I wrote a version in our own local dialect. Never did I think it would be still around, but so it is. It is above in Dublin, I'm told, in some place called the Royal Irish Academy. Of course, back then I thought writing it was only the beginning. Little did I realise how near the end it was for me. But it's no cause for pity, as I live on in the Irish I wrote in those pages. I hear it's the most important record of Irish we used to speak in our part of Roscommon, and that's no small thing. A legacy to be proud of, and no doubt in it. I lived a short life, but one that was long enough to always be remembered as the Irish writer. Look, it says so there on my stone, in the Gaelic and the English. It always does bring a smile to my face. It's the finest stone here, Edward. I've often said so. Ah, look, there's Francis and his little granddaughter, Maria. I simply must introduce you there. I'll be back with the news in a short while, Edward. Planted in the soil. Hello, Francis. Hello, Maria. We have a visitor. Hello, Anne. Always a pleasure to meet someone new here. Is there a finer thing than passing your knowledge on to family? Maria there is the finest student I ever had. There's nary a plant in the country beyond her knowledge or ability to grow. I remember well when I was her age. Learning my trade as a nurseryman often felt like pushing water uphill. Not for Maria. She soaked up everything I had to teach her, as easily as the trees soak up the rain. Lord, but we had some exciting times. It was the golden age for us gardeners, there's no doubt about it. I was just a lad at 20 when the Athlone Canal came on, back in 1757. Then, between the Shannon and our roads to Dublin, we had access to the whole world. I set up my first shop not long after. Heady days indeed. As the empire grew, so too did our stock. It seemed to us then that a week didn't pass without new and wondrous plants arriving in from the colonies, east and west. We used to grow and sell them all, staple and exotic. 
We had your fruit and forest trees, thorn and crab, quicks, cabbage, cauliflower, asparagus, anything and everything your heart could desire. Of course, most of us nurserymen grew plenty of trees down days. Parliament, in their wisdom, had decreed that the land hadn't enough of trees, and right they were. They made it law to plant them. I can tell you, we were happy to provide the means for people to do so. But it was the new ideas that captivated our Maria. I suppose it is myself who should take responsibility, for I used to teach her her letters using my own small library. We often thought she'd never come out. So many hours did she spend reading about all the discoveries and innovations. Oh, but her memory. Once our Maria read something, she'd never forgot it. And she could recite it back whenever you had a need of it. It proved a useful trick more than once, and no doubt about it. I well recall her great treasure, as she used to call it. A book she loved so well you'd think it had a life of its own. Or you would have if you heard her speak of it. Reading it helped her towards a mastery of Latin. Or at least that was the reason that she gave us. It was by that Swede who went by the name Carl Linnaeus. Systema Naturae, he called it. A fair important book it was, I can tell you. And none knew it better than our Maria. She would tell all who'd listen about the different kingdoms Linnaeus had come up with. The animal, the plant and the mineral. We tried to follow his new plant classifications where we could. And, from what I'm told, people still do. Maria still does. Indeed, she's classifying that plant over there as we speak. Of course, being a young woman, Maria could never follow me into the trade. But we were grateful for her, I can tell you. Her reading kept us up with all the new trends, a handy advantage when the great men came calling looking for help. We dealt with them all hereabouts at one time or another. The likes of the Malones up in Barronstown, the Hancocks over in my drum, the Dalys down in Castle Daly, the Smiths in Drum Cree. Some of them were after vegetables and plants for their gardens and hothouses, but others wanted to spend big on their domains. Many's the day we walked their estates to help pick out what trees to plant what views to frame, what features to add. Maria was always quick with the most practical and elegant suggestions, and we never did leave a patron unhappy. Most them days wanted the English styles, so Maria and myself spent long hours keeping up to date with the latest fashions. There was none back then to beat the work of Capability Brown, the greatest gardener of our day. Maria knew all his landscapes front to back and back to front. And Brown was not a man for a formal pattern, I can tell you. A natural look was the order of the day. And there are places you can see in Westmead still, where we tried to create it. Ah, but surely we did have some great times. Recalling them even now brings back sweet memories, as we forged a business in a pioneering age. I thank the Lord I got to share that passion with my granddaughter. And I share it with her still. You'll have to excuse me now, for we have a plant that needs examination. Conclusion Well, I think that's everyone who wants a chat today. Your poor ears must be in want of a rest. We just love having visitors, though, so thank you. You don't know what a comfort and relief it is to tell the story of your life. And how about your own story? Do give us a bit of news to keep us going. Who knows when we'll have another visitor? Thank you for listening to the Unsilent Stones audiobook. You can find more information about the archaeological sites investigated around Westmeath, Roscommon and elsewhere in a series of publications by Transport Infrastructure Ireland. Check out their website at tii.ie where they are listed. Athlone Library is a very useful resource for local historical research into the Irish Midlands. This audiobook was funded by Transport Infrastructure Ireland.
The script was written by Damien Shields and Neil Jackman and performed by Sharon Mannion, Sarah Jane Scott, Paula Rouse, Gary Montaigne, Malachi McKenna and Fionn Foley. Special thanks are due to Transport Infrastructure Ireland Project archaeologist Noel Dunn, historian Garrod O'Brien and to Hazel Ryan, who recorded the transcriptions and original headstones in the graveyard during the 1980s. Thanks also to project engineers Michael Kelly and Darren Fulham at Westmeath County Council National Roads Office. This audiobook was recorded at Bluebird Studios in Kildare with sound engineer Declan Lonergan and producer Roisin Burke. We hope you have enjoyed listening to the story of some of the people of Athlone Abbey Graveyard. You can find more audiobooks on our website at abarterheritage.ie.